Well, as I begin this morning, I do want to recognize what we got to celebrate last night, and that as we ordained Brian as a pastor here at New City Church, specifically as our executive pastor. So if the next time you see him, if you just want to congratulate him for how he serves us, call him Pastor Brian. That'll make him feel uncomfortable, and that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, as I begin this morning, speaking of Brian, I want to share a story about his wife, Brittany. Uh, Brittany also on staff here, and uh, a couple of years ago, we were at Frankie's Fun Park. If you've ever been there, it's like a Dave and Buster's. Have you ever been to those places like a, you know, carnival games or, you know, electronic games? There's these places where they have these games where they have the claw, right? And you, and you get the little stuffed animal, except you never get the stuffed animal. Like, you just waste your money, and it, like, grabs its head, and then it immediately falls down. Like, it just, and so you know it's not possible. And if you have your kids, they don't believe you, and so you eventually have to, like, put money in the thing just to show them that they can't get it. Like, it's all a scam. And so we're there for somebody's birthday, and Brittany's like, oh, I can do that. And like, okay, that's, no, you can't. And she did it on the second try. She got it. And she was like, yeah, I do this all the time. Like, I'm like, that's not, no, you don't do that. That's not a normal thing. Like, normal people don't actually beat this game. And I said, because today we're going to see Jesus yet again do something that he isn't supposed to be able to do. And we're going to see how people's reaction to it. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible and would like to read along with us, there's a black one around you. It'll be on page 891. Uh, If you have been with us, last week we read the story of one of Jesus' most well-known miracles, where he calms the sea when the disciples travel over the Sea of Galilee. Uh, And so they're going to the other side of the sea after a long day of preaching and ministry. The storm comes out of nowhere. They literally think they're going to die. And God rescues them. And today we're going to see God, God through Jesus do another powerful display of his power and his glory here on the earth. And so we'll pick up the story as they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says this. It says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones." So again, this is continuing from what happened, what we read last week, where they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's met by this crazy, demon-possessed man. So Jesus' disciples, they get there, they get out of this boat. I guess this man sees him somehow from afar and comes running to him. Now, it's a man that no one can contain or tame. In verse 4, when it says no one could subdue him, it's from the Greek word demazo, which literally means tame. The idea, the picture you're supposed to see here is like a wild animal that you cannot control, right? Nothing anybody could do, there's nothing anybody, anything anybody, nothing anything anybody could do to him to control him. It's kind of like when you come to New City Church and you drop your kids off at New City Kids and have someone else try to control them for an hour so you can get a break. That's kind of what's happening here. Nobody could stop this man. Now, uh, before I continue to read the story, I want to set this up in a way for us to fully appreciate how the original readers, the first century Jewish people, would have understood this story. Because for us, we're going to read a lot of details that sound interesting, but actually have a really massive impact. And so from a Jewish perspective, what we are going to read is a story that is full of uncleanliness, of dishonoring God and doing things or being around things that faithful Jews are not supposed to do. And so, for, for example, there are not, Jesus here is not, this is different before when Jesus was traveling around various villages and towns. He is going now to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee where Jews never went. 
unless they absolutely had to. He's going to go to the region called the Decapolis. We'll see this in verse 19. And this area uh, is basically full of Hellenistic culture, which is Greco-Roman culture and pagan culture of people, not Jews, following their gods and their idols and doing a lot of things that Jews would find repugnant. It's kind of like a modern day example of someone tells you they're going to drive out to Chapel Hill for the day, right? Why would you go there? Right? There is a school there that is not good, right? And so it's like, like there's no reason to be going there, right? This is different. Jesus is going somewhere that people are like, why would you do that? And again, to set up the story here, Jesus here is confronted by a man who lives in a graveyard. Uh, he likely ate the unfl- unclean food that was left at the grave sites uh, for the deceased. Uh, we're going to see that pigs are involved. And from a Jewish perspective, they are unclean and not kosher. And not only that, is the pigs in this area, historically, were likely supporting the Roman military and their occupation of the area. Or maybe you put it another way, here's how you would have saw this as an ancient Jew hearing or reading the story. You're going to see Jesus meet an unclean man who has an unclean spirit living in an unclean area surrounded by unclean people uh, in the the greater unclean Gentile territory. Jesus is going somewhere not neutral. If we knew what was happening from a first century context, we would ask, why would you go there? And probably not just from a sense of bewilderment, but also from a sense of annoyance. Good people don't go there. We don't spend time with those people. Why are you there? And this is where Jesus has crossed the sea to enter. And so here's what it says next, starting in verse 6, after the guy comes down and is crying out to Jesus. It says, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, the son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. So this man sees Jesus. He runs down to greet him. The Greek word that that we have translated as knelt down also connotates this idea of prostrating yourself in reverence and honor. That this man, or at least the demons inside this man, know who Jesus is, and they are afraid. Now, to be clear, we don't know what causes this man to go to Jesus originally. Like, is it the man in his senses knowing he needs to be helped that that leads him to go to Jesus? Or is it the demons and the evil spirits who know Jesus is, and so they're terrified, and so they go to Jesus asking not to be harmed? We're not sure. But in any case, uh, these demons refer to Jesus as the son of the most high God. So we'll see in a second how we know that the demons are kind of the ones that are speaking to Jesus through this man in a second. But they refer to Jesus as son of the most high God. Now, again, this is important because in Judaism, most high God is a phrase that emphasizes how Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is greater than all other gods. And so these demons here are recognizing who this is, right? They know who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh who has come, and they are afraid of him. And here's why they respond this way, because in verse 8, it says this, for he told him, so Jesus tells the demon-possessed man, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? Jesus asked the man. And the man says, my name is Legion. He answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly, so the demons begged Jesus earnestly, not to send them out of the region, right? The demons here are begging Jesus not to torment them because Jesus has commanded them to come out of the man. 
asks for his name. The demons respond, legion, because they are many. Uh, legion, just so you know, was the largest uh, unit in the Roman army, uh, typically about 6,000 soldiers. And so what is happening here is not that there's necessarily 6,000 evil and unclean spirits in this man, but there are a lot of them, and they are overpowering this man and who he is. And so here is Jesus' response to the demons, asking essentially for mercy from Jesus. And Jesus responds in a way that seems kind of peculiar. He says this in verse 11. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission. Jesus gives them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. Now, here's why this is interesting. Jesus here responds in an undeservingly gracious way. So this is not like a human being who has sinned and is asking for forgiveness. He's literally encountering demons. Why doesn't he just destroy them? Like, why would he do anything that they, want the, that they would want Jesus to do? Right? This, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, just, they are bad. They are evil. You, are to destroy, you should destroy them. And that's, yet, yeah, that's not what Jesus does. Instead, with a lot of irony, again, remembering that the, that, uh, the story that we just read about how they had just crossed the Sea of Galilee, Jesus gives them permission to go into the pigs. Now, uh, pigs are animals that have herd instincts, and so they just follow everybody else. And so what happens, they start freaking out. Something happens, if probably a few pigs start running. They all start following each other, and then they end up drowning themselves in the sea. Now, why is that significant? Because the demons are uh, killed and destroyed in the same body of water that Jesus has just displayed his power over, right? He's trying to show that they do not, they are not on any level or on any playing field equal to Jesus. And so again, from a Jewish perspective here, some good things are happening, right? The unclean animals, the pigs, which again, to you are bad, and the unclean spirits are taken care of, and the man is cleansed. The man is purified from the demonic presence. And so uh, that is worth celebrating, right? That is worth celebrating that Jesus has healed someone. However, as modern readers, you probably read this and have a sort of moral dilemma. So as excited as you are for the man, I know what you're thinking. Why would Jesus waste all of that bacon? I mean, that's good right there, right? I mean, amen from anybody. Okay, like why would he do that? Right? And so again, trying to put our mindset in how they would have understood it. Uh, if for us, um, it's a little bit different. So like in our culture today, like we know pigs are dirty, but they're also cute. Right? Like we have, um, we have Miss Piggy. We've got Porky Pig. Uh, we've got Piglet. We've got Babe from Charlotte's Web. We've got Piggly Wiggly. I mean, you're just shopping in the pig store. I mean, they're just, they're kind of nice. Like it seems rather interesting that Jesus would destroy them. Again, from a first century perspective, here's kind of how, let me put it this way. Like imagine me telling you that 2,000 rat infest, or infested rats or disease-carrying rats or 2,000 venomous snakes were destroyed. You'd be like, that's pretty sweet. Like all of a sudden you'd be like, praise Jesus, let's get more in there. Right? In fact, a couple of months ago, uh, I was reading a story about how Hurricane Ida that you know, came through Louisiana and went up the coast, and it ended up dumping a ton of rain in the Northeast. And so there was a lot of flooding, and particularly in New York City. So I was reading this story about they're not quite sure how many, but likely hundreds of thousands of rats were drowned. And you're like, good. 
Right? I mean, even PETA, they didn't, say, they didn't send a press release apologizing. I mean, even they were like, okay, I guess you got to say, we're glad. Like, they were like, yes, we're glad that, that happened. This is the mindset of how they would have saw this story. Now, even if you were to grant that, however, it's still, you might seem, well, it still seems a little interesting or maybe unfair because what about the well-being of the people who own those pigs or the people who maybe they're eating unclean animals at that time, but they still deserve to be fed and not go hungry? It seems like, what about the economic impact? Why would Jesus do that? I think what Jesus is doing here and displaying by not just crossing over the sea to the place where people said he shouldn't be, but by saving this person, he's showing us an important point. And that is that nothing is more valuable than a human being. Nothing is more valuable to God than people. Nothing is more valuable to God than you. That Jesus is going great lengths to save and to rescue somebody simply because he loves them. Uh, this story reminds me of an interview I saw with Tim Keller a couple years ago. He's a pastor and theologian in New York City, and he was talking about uh, the value of human beings uh, and of people and how Christians uh, engage politics differently. And so let me explain what he said, and then I'll, I'll tie this back into human worth in a second. But he said there are four characteristics of the first century church uh, that are pretty radical, uh, pretty evident that believers did all these things, and that show that people valued human life. And the four are as follows. Number one was racial justice, uh, that they cared about uh, all ethnicities, that all people are valuable before the image of God. And we kind of miss this as modern readers, how much uh, racially charged words are actually in the New Testament documents. Like, we don't understand the racial hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and Scythians, and barbarians, and Greeks, and slaves. And what do we see in the first centuries, you have people from all walks of life being welcomed, being cared for, and being welcomed into the kingdom and the church of God. And so you see racial justice was a big deal to first century Christians. Uh, you see that first century early Christians were deeply concerned about the poor and the marginalized. I mean, this whole idea that we all take for granted now of hospitals uh, and charity and caring for people and food banks and medical assistance, this did not exist until Christians in mass numbers appeared on the scenes. You even have reports of Roman empires or emperors who were dismayed because Christians were not just taking care of fellow Christians, but they were taking care of non-Christians. And they're mad because they didn't want more people to become Christians because of the love that they were receiving. They deeply cared about the poor and the marginalized. No matter what got them there, they loved them. You also see early Christians were deeply pro-life. And so in the, what would often happen in the, early, in the ancient world is that you would have a baby that you wouldn't want. Typically, it was a girl. Or for other, other reasons, sometimes it was a boy as well. And so what you would do is you would leave the babies on the side of the road, or you would essentially dump them in what were their uh, trash heaps, because that is how you got rid of unwanted babies. And so you have all of these historical documents of Christians who would literally go out and adopt them. Because to followers of Jesus, every single person is inherently valuable. No matter the geographical location of where you are, no matter how big or small you are, no matter how many or how developmentally, uh, uh, how, how well you are, how, how you have developed, like where you are in that stage, everybody matters. And then, of course, one thing that has always made Christians stand out is their biblical sexual ethic, that we are not to take advantage of one another, that sex is a good thing that God has given us in the context of a committed marriage between a man and a woman who have given their lives to one another. And so these four things were markers of early followers. Now, here's what's interesting. In our kind of current American uh, two-party system, 
it's very hard to, find, to, to feel at home in our two-party system as followers of Christ because what typically happens, generally speaking, is that each of the parties value two of these things more than the others. So the left-leaning politicians are more concerned with racial justice and be, of the poor and the marginalized. Again, this is just generics. I'm not saying this is defining you or anything like that, just generically speaking. Platforms on racial justice and the poor and the marginalized. And the more right-leaning politicians are more pro-life and obviously a biblical sexual ethic that these things matter, that maybe pornography should actually be regulated and access to these things are killing, are literally killing people and causing uh, depression and anxiety and all of these things. And yet, in Christianity, you see the combination of all four. What's happening here is all four of these emphasize the value of humans. In fact, what's happening here, Jesus is healing a man who is ethnically different than him and is poor and oppressed, and he's traveling a great distance to do so. He is showing us that nothing, no matter what it costs, is more valuable than a human being. And so with that, here's what it says next in chapter 5, verse 14. So as this is happening, there has a, a crowd has, a, has, has accrued, and they're watching what is going on, and it says this, verse 14. The men who tended them ran off, and reported it in the town and the countryside. And the people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him, beg Jesus, to leave their region. Now, what's happening here is that the reaction to Jesus is actually, if you were here last week, the same exact reaction that the disciples had to Jesus in the previous account, right? They are afraid. They see his power. They see what he can do. They realize that no one else has ever been able to do what this man has done before, and they are afraid. In fact, again, just like the disciples when they crossed the Sea of Galilee, these people are more afraid at the power of Jesus than the problem that Jesus solved. You see, at least for the demon-possessed man, they knew what to expect. Uh, they knew what to avoid. They kind of knew what was going to happen. But with Jesus, if he can do this, of course, the question is, what can't he do? And so even though Jesus solves their problem, because they're so afraid of who he is, they want him to leave. Instead of saying, what else can he do? Maybe instead of asking him for more miracles or more healings or any, they ask him to leave. Now, again, remembering the theme of Mark, uh, this is supposed to demonstrate to us what we read in Mark chapter 4, the parable of Jesus. In the parable of Jesus, he shows us that the onus is on the receiver, not the preacher, to receive the message. If you were here with the parable of the sower, how he scattered all these seeds, and as long story short, some accepted the message and some didn't. Now, again, if you're a follower of Jesus, we should love people well, or we should show people the love and grace of Christ. But at the end of the day, we cannot convince people of something that they might not Want. These people saw Jesus move powerfully, and because they did not want to accept him, accept him, they told him to leave. And so again, in this story, Jesus does the same thing that he did in the last story, where he has this, he brings miraculous calm in the, in the, in the, in the midst of upheaval and craziness. And of course, we mentioned this last week too. In the ancient world, the sea and the water was viewed as chaotic, uh, uncontrollable, and even evil, right? Nobody can control the seas because only, but that's only something God can do. And so when Jesus does this, they are left speechless. And the point here is that Jesus is actually doing these things uh, to the waters and to this man, that Jesus actually brings peace. 
that he has the ability to bring peace in areas where other people cannot. Uh, This brings to mind Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. It will be on the screen. In Revelation chapter 21, uh, John, the apostle John, near the end of his life, is given a a vision of what the kingdom of God is going to be like. When Christ returns and reestablishes and recreates the heavens and the earth and all those who are followers of him get to uh, take part in this, John is trying to, in human terms, explain what he saw. He says this in Revelation 21, verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, John here is not literally saying that there's not going to be any sort of sea or water or anything like that in the new heavens and the new earth. What he's saying is that the chaotic, evil, and uncontrollable forces will be no more. In other words, in light of this and in light of the passage we're reading, here's what we see. That peace is found in the power of Jesus. Peace is found in the power of Jesus. It is found in him and what he has done and what he has accomplished, not in us. And here's the thing. All of us want peace, right? All of us would say we would want peace. But in order for us to experience this peace, we have to trust in his power, If we do not trust in him, then we will not experience the peace that he is offering. You have to trust. It it reminds me, this is not a perfect analogy, but it reminds me back in April when Christine and I went to Disney to celebrate uh, 10 years of marriage. We were on the, for the hotel we were staying at, uh, Disney has this thing called a Skyliner. And so a a few of the parks are connected to, to the Skyliner. And so instead of having to ride a shuttle, it's like a, you know, like an enclosed ski lift, essentially, that you can fit 10 people on at a time. You know, it was during all the height of COVID stuff. And so it was only like one family or one couple at a time. So the lines took forever because there's like two people in a thing that's supposed to sit 10. But anyway, uh, we go one morning, we get on this, you know, ski lift thing, the Skyliner, we get to the park eventually, it was great. And then, then we get on the Skyliner again that night to come home. And so we're riding it, or get back to the hotel. So we're riding the Skyliner. You know, it's dark. You're like 40, 50 feet in the air. And all of a sudden, it just stops, right? And you're not going too fast, but you're going a little bit. So the thing like shakes. For a second, both of us kind of freak out, like what's happening here? And, you know, Christina starts worrying. And she's like, well, what if we die? What if it falls? What about our kids? In fact, the next day, she's like, we should ride the Skyliner separately. I'm like, no, we're not going to do that, right? But it was like, it was unnerving. Like, what is going to happen? And so, you know, after a while, it took like five or 10 minutes. I'm not quite sure. So we're sitting there. Like, they don't announce anything. Like, you don't know what's going on. And so Christina's like holding on really tightly to the seat. And I think at some point, like, I stood up and I was just like doing whatever, like, like rocking a little bit. And she was like telling me you can't do that and you've got to hold on. And so me and my very uh, Christ-honoring, empathetic, loving husband demeanor, I said to her, it does not matter how hard you hold on to this thing. If it falls, we will be crushed and we will die. So you can hold on. I can stand up. We're dead. So she was worried. And I mean, I was like not, I wasn't excited about it, but, I, but here's what I was thinking. I was like, man, I guarantee that none of these things have ever actually fallen because if they had fallen, this thing would be shut down. And if people had fallen in it, they would have been sued. They would, this thing would happen. So I was trusting in the fact that I don't think this has happened before, that the, the Skyliner has the power to hold us even though it wasn't moving. And, and of course, it's not the exact same thing. But what we're seeing here is that if you want to experience peace, you have to trust in the power of Jesus. But this can be hard. This can be hard because here's what it says next in verse 18 of chapter 5. So as they, after they asked Jesus and his followers to leave, it says this. As he, being Jesus, was getting into the boat, 
the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out, the formerly demon-possessed man, went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. So in light of all that is happening, this man sees that Jesus and his disciples are finally leaving, and he asks to become a disciple or a follower. Like he at least wants to be in the band of people following Jesus around, but Jesus says no. Now, we're not told why Jesus says no, but it could be one of two reasons, or maybe both of them together. Uh, one reason could be that as a Gentile, so this man was a non-Jew, him being a close disciple follower of Jesus would have been a stumbling block to Israel, right? What was Jesus' mission? To come and tell Israel that their desire, that their prophesied Messiah had come. Now, of course, Jesus came for the whole world, but the Israelites were the people that were, that were longing to see him. And by him having a Gentile around with his original disciples would have been a stumbling block for people to accept him. So maybe that's part of the reason. Or maybe the reason is, unlike before, when, people, when Jesus, at least up until this point, had healed people, had performed miracles, he's always telling people not to say anything. Now, the reason seems to be that people, if they start to tell everyone about what Jesus has done, like specifically Jesus was the one who healed them, people would start to get these false ideas of what Jesus had come to do. Right? The Israelites knew that a Messiah was going to come eventually, and, they, and Jesus does not want them to misunderstand his mission. Well, here, uh, Jesus is talking to a Gentile who has no messianic expectations. And so the people that he tells about the message of Jesus and what Jesus has done would not have this false idea in their minds about who Jesus is. And of course, on top of that, Jesus has now been barred from this region, which means this man can go and do what Jesus can't, to go and tell people about Christ, who Jesus is, and his message. And so Jesus tells him, no, you can't join me, but I want you to go. And what does he say in verse 18? He, or sorry, verse 19. He says, I want you to tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And then what does it say in verse 20? What does this man do? It says, he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done. Right? Mark here is showing us something very specific. Because to Mark, Jesus is the Lord. Right? The Lord actually has come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so in light of that, let me give you uh, two takeaways from this story. The first one is this. That the more comfortable you want to be, the less receptive to Jesus you will be. We see this in the previous story. We see this in this story. If you, want, if you desire comfort, which of course all of us do to some degree, but the more comfortable you want to be, the less receptive to Jesus you will be. Right? Because here's the thing. Again, as much as they might not have liked this demon-possessed man and what he was doing, at least they knew what to expect. But it is not the case with Jesus. Even though he does really cool things, we have to recognize if he can do this, what can't he do? In fact, if you're familiar with the story of the young ruler, uh, the, 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 the rich young ruler who at one point comes and approaches Jesus and says, what do I have to do to follow you and enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus responds to this young rich man by saying, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and come and follow me. Now, to be clear, I don't think in that text, Jesus is saying that if you want to follow me, you have to give out all your possessions away. But in this moment, he knows that this man's possessions are his idols and his comfort, 
What Jesus is telling this man is that I am greater than the things that you value. And if you're familiar with the story, it says the rich young ruler went away sad because he had many possessions. As much as he wanted to follow Jesus, he was more after, after comfort than faithfulness, right? Following Jesus is not comfortable. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I mean, here's the thing, right? We all would want Jesus to move. Even if you're not quite sure about this Jesus thing, you're like, man, if God exists, I want to see him move powerfully. But at the same time, if we're being honest, we also want him to be, he wants to, we want him to be a comfort to us. Like, for example, if you're a follower of Jesus, right, you would, you would recognize that the prosperity gospel is not the gospel. Right? The prosperity gospel is that if you're faithful, you will get all your health, your money, your relationships, everything will go well for you. Now, we know that's not true because Jesus was killed. His disciples were killed. All throughout scripture, you see faithful people who suffer. And so, again, that doesn't say that if you're following Jesus, everything will go bad for you. But being faithful does not mean everything will go well for you. And so we reject that that's true, right? And a couple of years ago, however, I was listening to this podcast interview of this pastor, and he has said something that I still have not forgotten. He says, you know, many of us reject the prosperity gospel. However, when you look at what we pray about, our prayer theology says something quite different. He said, you know, how often do we pray for things like the pay raise or the house or the relationship, or um, the healing. And hear me, not that these are bad things, but so much of what we say, we want to see God move powerfully, but then what we pray for is comfort. That's what we pray for. Again, not that it's bad, but that we have to ask ourselves, how often do we ask God to move powerfully and put us in situations that might make us uncomfortable? Like, am I willing to say, God, this week, would you give me the opportunity to tell somebody how you have moved in my life? God, would you, uh, would you reveal to me where I can be more financially generous? God, would you tell me as I'm looking at these, uh, these, taking these job offers, not where can I get the most money, but where can I make the biggest impact for your kingdom? How willing are we to pray the uncomfortable prayers? Because I think what happens in our prayer, and again, with good intentions, if all we pray for is comfort, of course, we're not going to see God move powerfully. Because those things often don't go together. It reminds me a couple of weeks, uh, months ago, uh, we went to Cowfish. It's my wife, Christina's favorite restaurant. We were given a gift card. And so we, we took the kids with us and our six-year-old Finley, our three-year-old Roman. And so uh, Finley, when we go to Cowfish, there's like this yellow cowfish thing in the front of it, if you've ever been there. And uh, it's like this plastic metal thing. And the kids just like to like sit on it and play on it. It's like nothing special at all, but they really like it. And so Finley was like, while we're waiting, can I play on the fish when we get there? And we're like, sure, totally, that's fine. And so we get there and uh, there's a long wait. And so we, you know, we're waiting outside and there was this, like, there's like a cornhole thing set up and there was a woman who was like sitting against the fish. And so Finley was bummed because that means she can't climb on it. But we were thinking, it's okay, she's going to move eventually, like, you know, whatever. And so we're sitting there, 25 minutes later, she's still there. And so Finley was getting antsy and was getting, like, I want to go play on this fish. And so, she, so Christina tells Finley, well, why don't you go ask the woman to move? Now, if you're a kid, I mean, that's like talking to a monster, right? Like, <laughs> I am not going to go ask somebody to move, right? But in this moment, what happened? Finley wanted something, and of course she's sick, so, you know, we would do the same thing. But she wanted something. But her desire, to be not, her desire not to be uncomfortable to ask somebody to move, to move got in the way of her doing what she actually wanted to do. And so Christina, because she's very kind, it says, well, eventually she, Christina says, well, I'll go and ask the lady to move for you. And I'm thinking, that's awkward. Like, I don't mind confrontation, but I'm not going to go ask to some woman to like, can you get off this fish so my kid can play on it? And so Christina goes, and I'm just like not looking to see what happens. And long story short, the lady was kind. She moved. The kids got to play on it. And so, they, you know, it was a win-win for everybody. But again, in that moment... Finley wanted something, 
but her comfort got in the way of what she actually wanted more than anything else. And I just think for us, the more comfortable you want to be, we see throughout Scripture, the less receptive to Jesus you will be because God often moves in uncomfortable ways. So we see that, and then we also see this, that no one can do what Jesus can do. Nobody. Last week, we saw that he calmed the seas and the storm and the wind and the waves. Uh, this week, we see that he heals a demon-possessed man in a powerful way that nobody else could control. And of course, ultimately, Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He came and lived the life we could not live, died the death that we deserve so that we can experience peace, healing, forgiveness, and victory in his name, not because of us, because of him. He came to initiate and to invite us into the kingdom, not because we deserved it, but because, we, because he earned it on our behalf, that he came to do what no one else can do. And he is inviting us in to trust him and to follow him, that no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter in this story, where you live, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter your ethnicity, everyone, every single person is a valuable human being to God. And nobody can do what he can do. And he is inviting us into his kingdom, not based on our power and our strength, but on his power, his strength, and what he accomplished. He says, anybody who repents and follows me gets to enter into my kingdom, not because you are good enough, because of what I did on your behalf. No one can do what Jesus can do. Let's pray.